welcome to the 100 podcast it's n charlie here with you hope you're well today is our very festive mailbag it's our christmas mailbag we've asked you for your questions for us to answer on our christmas special um now when we put out the concept of a christmas mailbag and um, we didn't really have a festive theme for it we just assumed we might get christmasy questions uh, <laughs> and uh, unsurprisingly having thought about it we haven't had any festive questions so the only way this is really a christmas mailbag is my christmas jumper um, as you can see, Charlie, uh, here you are. It's a reindeer. Uh, Very nice. If I find out how to turn it on, a second, is it going to... There you go, can you see it? Oh, wow. Look at that. Oh, the lights. Light up antlers. The antlers wow. on my reindeer are uh, going off on the light display. Now we'll work out how to turn it off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is our this is our Christmas mailbag. Um, the, the most festive thing we could possibly do. Um, give me a moment. Right. First of all, Charlie, how are you doing whilst I try and work out how to turn off my Christmas jumper? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I've got to say, whoever had the idea and the technology to put lights and electrics into jumpers was really under something. I hope they're having a, a nice, expensive Christmas because they deserve it. Um, yeah, well, given the no, price I, I, I paid, they're definitely having a fucking, <laughs> fucking good Christmas, let me tell you that. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm good, thank you. Uh, I don't have a Christmas jumper actually at the moment but um I'm in a shed which is cold so and and it's cold at Christmas so um I guess in that in that vein I am feeling quite Christmassy because it's cold um well the nativity that, was cold so I think if anything you're even more festive <laughs> than I am the nativity did not have a glowing that's true glowing jumper you're kind of in a barn you're kind of yeah, like that's a, a very good point a yeah, hundred Jesus um, so yeah, uh, I'm not quite sat, sat in a manger. Uh, I am sat in a, a garden chair without a cushion. I'm just sitting on springs because it gets really damp and, uh, and soggy in the winter. So I'm just sitting on springs. But I guess there's a modern-day manger, you know, in a way. Exactly. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's do our mailbag. Uh, if you do want to drop any Christmas questions our way for a future Christmas mailbag, uh, you can go to our Twitter page, at Podcast Sundra, drop us a DM, or just tag us in a tweet, and... Ask your questions. We'll get round to them. Let's start with the first of two questions from Craig Ellicott. Hello, Craig. Uh, it reads, Hiya, I'm not sure if the information is available, but would love to know what the draft will look like this year. When is it? How many players will be retained? Is everything staying the same in terms of number of overseas players allowed? And the addition of an extra squad member based on the blast later in the season. Now, um, the extra squad member, of course, being the wild card pick. Now, uh, if you want more information on this, on retentions and draft, go listen to our retention rules special episode. We went through everything there. So we won't go through it completely in full, but on a base level, Craig, uh, you get 10 retentions for each team. And then with the open slots that are opened up, you'll have the draft and teams can rebuild. I would fully recommend going and just going through our retention rules podcast if you want all the latest on that, um, because that will give you a good base. And we, we discussed it in incredible depth for what was a very, very light announcement. Uh, we really made, we really stretched it out. So I would 100% go and look at that, but uh, there's still wildcard players. There's still the same number of overseas, um, but the retention rules are covered in that podcast. Um, let's go on to the Manchester Originals final account question next. It does relate to this, and it relates to new information that Charlie has ascertained from his many sources. Um, the Manchester Originals final account tweet says, uh, when looking to retain players, is the price point fixed, or can you retain at a lower slash higher price point? If the latter, which player will be the most significant riser slash faller of those who will be retained? Right, Charlie, you're in the know. 
we, we've learned something about this since we re, re, uh, recorded the Retentions podcast, so tell us all. We have. I'm officially a cricket ITK now, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but um, who'd, who'd have thought it? It on me. But uh, no, I can confirm uh, that the price points are not fixed uh, and teams and players will be allowed to negotiate with their players to potentially move their price points up and down uh, depending on what they're looking for and what they want. So uh, that does mean that we might see some fairly hefty uh, increases and drops in terms of salaries and price brackets, but we don't know how that's going to work out just yet. I think actually that's a really, it's an interesting thing because if you remember, uh, Saka Mahmood left the Manchester Originals last year because they asked him to take a pay cut. Uh, and that really opened up the Oval Invincibles to an absolute steal and getting Sakib. So I wonder if if you you might actually see this opening up some interesting stuff for the draft. Because if there's a breakout player who a certain team don't want to pay that much money, then you know they might go into the draft. And I think it actually opens up new possibilities for the weaker teams to rebuild. So I think that's actually an interesting aspect of this. Let's talk about. Highest risers, Charlie. Have you got an initial thought on who might go up the levels? Because I think it's a very obvious one. Yeah, I think there's a few guys who were either drafted quite low down or came in very late in the day uh, as replacements on lower mm. price brands and wildcards. That potential area there, I think, is where we might see risers. Uh, but actually, there's one from the Manchester Originals, funnily enough, who I think is a really obvious one who may well go up. Um, here was their very last pick. It's Tom Hartley. He had a really superb season. Really, really stand up player for them, I think, actually. He did incredibly well. Uh, and he may well be thinking, my performances are more valuable than the price I'm on. So he may well be thinking, I want to get more money. Uh, give me more money or I'm going to go elsewhere. He would be, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I don't want to speak about Tom Hartley, but, but in terms of, you know, value for performance, Manchester are getting incredibly good value for Tom Hartley at the moment. And he is that kind of player, I think, is where you might be looking at guys who will be rising. Yeah, I think he kind of, for me, would look to go into the kind of round eight, round 10 range, I think would be fair, because I do think he's a very good player. And ultimately, if he's playing in your team every week and he's bowling his allocation, that makes him one of your most, you know, 10 most valuable players. So I think he would absolutely deserve at least a round 10 pick, if not a round eight pick. I think he'd want to stay with the Manchester Originals would be my take because the, the pitches there suit him. He plays for Lancashire. It just seems like a good deal for him. But ultimately, if he's not getting the right cash, then absolutely. If he can double his money next year, he should do it. So I do hope he goes up. Then the obvious one for me, former wildcard pick, Jake Linton. Now, given how good a tournament he had, given how much he kind of broke out, I'd be really interested to see how the Southern Bread do this because obviously they drafted very well. They have a lot of really high-caliber talent. And actually, there are a number of players on that squad who will probably ask to be moved up. Tyler Mills, for example, drafted considerably lower than he probably should have been. You've also got the case of, you know, obviously Jake Linter. Um, there's other players in there who, who maybe might be thinking, oh, I could get a bit more money out of this, maybe. Um, Alex Davies is a great tournament, for example. But I, I do think Jake Linter's the obvious one. And I think he would probably be someone who, if he went to a general draft... I think he wouldn't last past round six would be my suggestion to you, Charlie. I don't know what you make of that. No, I completely agree. Um, I think they got an incredibly good deal by picking him as a wild card. I think that was a superb selection. He was just so good for them. He was really influential and instrumental. Uh, I don't think he played the first game, but I think they tinkled their team balance a little bit. And once they clicked it, then he was really, really superb for them. And I totally agree. I think 
I think that if he was to go into the draft now as a you know unattached player, he would get significantly better money than he was on last season. With that in mind, I think that he's in a good position right now. He can go to Southern Brave and say, I think that I'm deserving a bit more than I'm earning. And if they don't want to give him that, then he's in a good position to earn significantly more by going into the draft. The question is, does he then think that he wants to stick loyal and be loyal to the Southern Brave, who gave him a chance last year, who he did well for, and who he won the title with, let's not forget. He may want to stay there. And this is, I think, the debate that a lot of teams are going to be having with a lot of players. Obviously, we can't speak on behalf of the players. We don't know what their situation is. But it certainly brings in a very interesting extra layer to the draft and the retention process. I think the thing to remember is cricketers aren't paid a great deal in England. So if you are, if you're offered something less than you're worth, and there is a pretty high chance that another team's going to pay you 20 grand more, screw loyalty. Like, I mean, it's your job. Well, right? I agree, yeah. But just, I think that's a general rule, right? If you are working for a company and another company swoops in and says, we'll pay you double what you're earning now to do the exact same job, then you take it. So, and I think I think loyalty will pay into play into it, but I do think Jake Linter and players like him deserve the money. So I hope they do get the money. The interesting for Tom Mills, I think, is given how he was underdrafted. And I think if he was in a general draft, he'd go within the first two rounds in the 100K range. How, do he, how does he play it? Because I think the Southern Brave are now in this interesting scenario where because you have to mutually agree the retentions, given how good their squad is, they're probably going to have to give players up that they didn't want to. And I think it actually adds an interesting aspect of retentions that we haven't thought about previously. Yeah, it does. I think the Southern Brave are in, they've got quite a few players like that. George Garton, I think, as well. He was pretty low down. And he's now significantly higher value than that. We've seen him do well in overseas leagues. Obviously, last season in the 100, he was superb. Again, he's one that if he wanted to be released, he could very easily make at least double what he's earning now because he's a really valuable young player with significant upside. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he went in the first two rounds just because of that. So mm-hmm. they have a very interesting conundrum to Southern Brave. Because on paper, you think about it, you think, well, they've got great players. Just pick the 10 best ones that represent the most value and you're sorted. But I don't think it's going to be quite as easy as that now we know that you can move up and down the bracket because they've got a fair few players who were undervalued when they signed them. And now they're going to have to try and accommodate them all while making them happy. It's going to be tough. And I'm curious to see how they do it. I think it adds a really interesting aspect because if George Garton was to go out there, I can tell you he'd be paid. But he would go in the first four rounds, I'd, I'd reckon. I think there are a number of players out there who the Southern Brave did really well, and they beat everybody with an early draft strategy. Uh, and clearly, they they dominated that. Look at their squad. But now, it's not so easy to keep them around. So I think that's going to be interesting. We'll see how that plays out. In terms of players who might fall, what are your thoughts on this? Because I think that ultimately, it's difficult when someone asks you to take a pay cut to stay with them. So I don't know whether team whether certain players will want to chance it and go back into the draft or just keep the fact that they're being paid because they might not keep, be picked up again. Because there are some players who maybe were slightly overdrafted who didn't quite perform as well as they'd like. So I, I think there are a couple of players there. And the one we both mentioned potentially with Pat Brown, very, very good bowler. Um, he had some really great success in the blast, played for England. Last two years, he's been suffering from injuries, hasn't been the same guy you wonder if someone like him says, okay, well, look, I'm not in great form. I'm not sure if anyone's going to pick me up. Maybe if they offer me slightly less money, I'll stay with this team and develop. I think that is someone to take a look at. Yeah, I think Brown's a good shout. I really rate Pat Brown before I say anything else. I really like him. I think he's a ball of excellent potential. And I truly believe that and hope that someday he gets back to his best. Right now, he hasn't really been showing 
in that form. And I think he is a good example, actually, of a player who, you know, might want to stick with the pay cut and be retained if it's offered to him. Otherwise, I don't know if it's necessarily something that a lot of players are going to want to do. I think a lot of them will think, well, I can probably make the same money again somewhere else. Whether or not they actually do is another question. But I think that may be something that, that comes into their thinking. It may well offer teams some value. It also might be an area where you think you've got to be brutal as a team. And mm. if you think that there's a player there who isn't necessarily repaying what you drafted them for, then I think you have to be brutal and say, I'm going to, you know, either you take less money or we're going to cut you. I agree. It's a discussion about value. And if the player's not giving you value, then you kind of have to make a decision and be harsh and move on. That's just the world we live in. And actually, I think... Having learned this, we might see less retentions than we potentially thought, given this dynamic. I think it's interesting. Another one for the Adam Schefter of the 100, Charlie Peters. You might not get that reference, Charlie, but for NFL fans, that's really funny. Um, Tom McMillan has asked the question, kit speculations. Now, I have no idea about any of this. I just assume the kits were there and they'd be staying. But insider info, Charlie Peters, has got us on this one. Well, I'm not sure how insider this is. I, I'm pretty sure this is a commercially, a, like universally available stuff. But a basic as as Google aware, search, but but no one else <laughs> is doing that basic Google search. So well, yeah, that's true. But as far as I'm aware, the kits that we saw last season were originally intended to last for two seasons, uh, as provided by New Balance. However, an interesting spanner in the works here is that the New Balance deal. Uh, that the ECB have to provide all England, England kits does run out in, I believe, March next year, uh, at which point it will be replaced by Castor, uh, who you may know from producing the West Indies kit, which I think is very, very nice. But besides that, what I'm potentially alluding to here is the fact that I don't know if New Balance will be making the kits when their contracts run out, because that wouldn't make sense. So I don't know if the 100 deal is separate to the England one, but assuming it's all part of the same package deal, then very possibly the kits may change. But I think I, I think the two-year deal would stay. I think just because it's an easy thing, isn't it? March to the tournament starting in the middle of the summer is a bit of a quick turnaround. And I do think it would make sense for the kits to stay the same right now, especially for the Birmingham Phoenix, because they're going to look like mugs if they change their kit, given their kit is based around their sponsor. I think that's the big thing about kits, isn't it? Like Butterkist is the Birmingham Phoenix kit. What happens if Butterkiss doesn't sponsor the Birmingham Phoenix anymore? Well, what do they do? <laughs> the I think you have is to find another. Bag. I think you have to find another snack that has a orange and red colour theme. Really, <laughs> otherwise, um, Jaffa cakes. <laughs> Maybe you could do something. Oh no, I don't think Pringles would work. Anyway. Point is, I, I would imagine the kits will stay the same this year, and then we'll move forward. But I don't think things will change much. I think, I don't think we're going to see too much because I think ultimately brand awareness is really important early on. I think mucking around with the kits for no reason probably wouldn't be the best idea. Um, I think it would be much, it made much more sense just to keep things relatively simple and relatively the same. Um, I don't think we're going to see it like in the IPL where a team is going to change kits every three or four years and rebrand when they're doing badly and stuff. It'll be much more like the Big Bash. Um, where I think teams will stay the same and they'll keep those core identities. Hopefully they change the kits less than the Big Bash because the Big Bash kits this year are disgusting. Um, the Adelaide Strikers, have, oh God, it's an awful kit. 
Well, yeah, I think on that, we will probably see the kit stay this year and then maybe it will change, but I'm, I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I agree with you on the branding point of view. I think, you know, we've got these still pretty new teams. I, I And last season, we kind of saw them really taking shape uh, and building their identities. And I think that's something you need to try and make the most of. You can't just assume, well, we've done it now. We've got one season. People know them now. We can change it. That's not a good idea. I think you need to be consistent, stick with the brands that you've identified. I think, you know, each team has a pretty clear colour scheme now. You've got pretty clear design. I think you stick with that for another season if you can. And even when the kit sponsor does eventually change, I still think it's a good idea to keep them relatively similar to what we have now. Keep all the colours and et cetera, you know, the same where possible. Right. Barnaby Merrill asks, the 100 had a great debut year last year. What can it do to consolidate that success? I would suggest fixing the on-screen graphics at a minimum. Hey, Charlie, you know we're back when we're talking about on-screen graphics again. Come on. Um, I think the 100 did have a good first year, and I think there are a lot of different things that it can do. I think the the first thing is building brand awareness and and I think getting the, the tournament out there more. The fact that it's on BBC was great. I think it would be great to see more people in the grounds, more families in the grounds. And I think there are certain things they should probably do regarding the men's tournament to try and change the vibe slightly. Um, but that I don't, I, that's kind of tough to go into. But in terms of the on-screen graphics, before we go into our thoughts, I, I maintain that I, I'm not sure how bad they are. I think we, again, because we're cricket fans, we look at them and we think, what the hell are these? But ultimately, again, our opinions don't really matter. What matters is the people who are seeing the game for the first time. And from those people, I haven't really had any massive complaints about them. So I'm not sure whether a massive change is needed, even though I do find them slightly annoying. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with them, I think. I completely see the idea there. And I, I think it's actually quite... A, quite a fun little thing if I'm honest I, I do think that take up quite a bit of space on the screen which is obviously the downside there it does look a bit like you're kind of boxing in the aspect ratio of the footage like full screen rather than widescreen a little bit uh, but I like the idea I think it's it's, it's very game inspired isn't it it's very gamification of, of mm. the sport if you like and that kind of ties into the things that with the avatars as well that Sky did. And honestly, I don't mind it. I think it's quite fun. And if it's something that, that kids and new audiences are going to enjoy, then I don't, think, I don't think it's going to put me off at all. So stick with it if it works. I think for me, if I was in charge of it, I would replace those bars with just two boxes. Like run scored, balls needed, bang, bang, or whatever it is, just in the just at the bottom, just so it takes up less space. That'd be my thought. Make it simpler, make it easier, less, you know, less disruption. But ultimately, I don't think it's the big thing getting in the way of 100 succeeding. Charlie, when you look yeah, at the 100 th- this, this year, I think it went well. What does it need to do next year and the years going forward for it to be a success? Because we know what it really needs to be, what the basis are is to get more fans involved. But what can it do to get even better? I think the first thing I would say is don't run before it can walk. Uh, I think we've seen examples of tournaments around the world, not naming any names, <laughs> <Big> <laughs> bash, <laughs> where, where they, they, <laughs> where they try and essentially take something that's already working and is already the base of something really exciting and expand it, stretch it, add new gimmicks to it that don't 
really add anything of value. I think expanding it is not a good idea right now. I think the Big Bash, we're really seeing quite a big decrease in crowds and general interest in it. Uh, that's been along the downward trajectory the last couple of seasons. And I would be very sad to see the 100 make the same mistake. I think having a relatively compact tournament is a very good thing. And I think that's the path it needs to be sticking on, I think. I also think something could be done, as you alluded to earlier, actually, Ed, um, about the general vibe in the grounds with the men's games. They can get a little bit laddish and a little bit boorish, and I don't think that's necessarily the kind of crowd that the 100 is aiming for. What you do about that, I don't know, because you can't stop people coming to the games. You can't necessarily police that in an obvious way, but I do think there's a conversation to be had on that front. Yeah, I don't think I'd take, I don't think I'd take kids of a certain age to a men's game, uh, given the game, the game that I went to in London, how that was. I wouldn't do that. Women's game, absolutely fine. Atmosphere is great. Happy to do that. I think the atmosphere in the men's game is just a bit, yeah, it, it, it wasn't right. And I think they do have to think about that because that's the one great thing about the bash is that it's a great family atmosphere and the 100 has to make that work, in my opinion. Because ultimately, I know some people are like, well, these are the people who go watch sports and stuff. Well, okay, these are the people who go watch sports in London who are drunk going out with their mates after work. They're not the lifeblood of the sport. Well, the lifeblood of the sport will be and should be going moving forward is young families and people from different backgrounds who are not pretty rich people, men usually working in the city, going having a few beers with the lads and shouting some comments at people at 8pm. It's That's not what the sport should be. So I think they do have to work that out. But... I think our big message is to the hundreds. I don't run before you walk. I completely agree with that. Don't expand the schedule. Um, and we'll come on to that in our next question, actually. Don't expand the schedule. Um, and just don't make any drastic, silly changes just for the sake of it. This works. Don't add more gimmicks. Just, just let this gimmick work and then work things out from there. That leads on to our next question from 12K Talky Palm. What do you think the schedule will look like? Uh, we hope exactly the same, basically. Uh, I think would probably be our thoughts on that. Uh, and then any changes to team strategies? We're going to come on to draft strategies momentarily, but I want to talk slightly more about actual in-game strategies right now, Charlie, if that's all right. What are the kind of changes that you think we might see from teams that weren't really exploited in the tournament we saw over the summer? Because I think with all these rules, people haven't quite worked out how the best way to use them is. Yeah, that's true. I think last season we saw it took a couple of games for a lot of teams to really find their footing, I guess, and, and really work out you know, how to how to go about this new format. And I think by the end, it was pretty clear that some teams had more or less cracked it and some teams were still floundering a little bit in that regard. I would say one area that I think a couple of teams might be looking to change is their approach early doors, batting in the power play. I think there was... A little bit of stodginess from some teams, if I'm honest. Yeah. I, didn't, I think there was quite a lot of stodgy, negative batting that seemed more focused on wicket preservation than just going and hitting boundaries. And when you look at the teams that got to the final in the men's teams, uh, Birmingham Phoenix, Southern Brave, there were both teams who weren't afraid to take risks in the power play. And it, it paid off for them, very obviously. You look at the teams like the Spirit, World Fire, who didn't do so well, they just weren't as aggressive. I was very unfortunate enough to watch the Spirit versus Superchargers game, but Lords and the Spirit response chasing was so negative. They were chasing, you know, reasonably high total. I can't remember what it was exactly. And 
they were just happy to knock it around and, and take singles and there was no intent whatsoever. And it was awful to watch because they were just solely in terms of their strategy, losing the game. They weren't even trying to get close. Mm. And that's something that has to change in terms of strategy. So I'm expecting and hoping to see some, some, some more aggressive batting from those teams. Yeah, I think the team really to mention that for that is the Trent Rockets. I thought Absolutely. they'd put a real ceiling on themselves. I thought they had a really good team. And as you saw throughout the tournament, they had some good middle order knocks. If Alex Hales was playing for the Trent Rockets and he smacked 50 off 25, whatever it is, made a massive score score really quickly, the game's over because they're a good team. But ultimately, they were too conservative. And that doesn't help, obviously, when you have Darcy Short, who is just... We, we were very fond of Darcy Short. Uh, when he st- kind of broke through, he had a good couple of years. He's got the yips, and hopefully he fi- returns to form. But at the moment, he he just can't do it. Not in the big bash, not wherever he goes. He just can't get it off the square and can't get his innings going. It's a shame because it's really fun to watch. But that's that he just he's such a stodgy starter for them. They need, obviously need to replace him um, moving forward to the train rockets. But I think that's the kind of thing that. And, you know, teams should be looking at it, is thinking, well, okay, we've only got 100 balls. We've got this 25-ball power play. Let's go after it. Let's use it. Um, and let's just make sure we don't put ourselves behind the eight ball. So I think that's a very good point. And I do think with the 10-ball over stuff, I think that's a bit of a mirage. I don't think we're going to see a great deal of it. To be honest, I have come to believe I don't particularly love what it offers you. I think when you use your pace bowlers, they get tired. When you use your spinners, eventually it the matchup's not going to work or they're going to get found out or whatever it is. So I'm not a particular fan of that, but I do think actually just the traditional T20 strategies of how hard do you go as a batting team is ultimately what is there to look at. Let's move on to uh, a first question from Rosie on Twitter. Hello, Rosie. Are there going to be a lot of players staying on the same teams or will there be some changes? Give us a hint about Welsh fire. Right, Rosie, uh, prepare yourself for this. Uh, in terms of player changes at the Welsh Fire, uh, hopefully everybody would be my first point. Uh, <laughs> tear it down to the ground, Big Gary. Um, both the men's and women's Welsh Fire teams didn't have... I, I, they can't, I can't even say didn't have great years. They were terrible. I think it's much easier for us to talk about the men's side of things because the the, the actual side of the women's recruitment and draft, just there's no real details about how it actually happened. There wasn't really a draft process. What it seemed to be is that players kind of got picked by the coaches. And we don't really have details to elucidate on this, but it seemed like the Southern Braves were really good because Charlotte Edwards just phoned up every good cricketer in the country. It was like, uh, fancy a game for me. And because it's Charlotte fucking Edwards, everyone was like, yeah. Um, and then with the Welsh Fire, somehow they ended up with a side that just wasn't, competitive so for, i hope on the women's side of things they do even things out and make some changes because that wasn't great to watch on the men's side of things where it's much more clear how things actually work i do think the welsh fire really need to change things i thought their strategy under gary kirsten just wasn't it wasn't it um and i think you know injuries were an issue of course but you know they had liam plunkett there matt critchley i don't think it was a great buy I just it, not, nothing they seem to do really worked, and I'd love for them to make some wholesale changes and hopefully really cash in. So I think you can be bold in this scenario. Um, I, let, let's say, as we talked about earlier, lots of players change teams, right? Let, let's just say that's what happens. Um, you know, whether, whether that's players leaving because they want to 
you know, gets get some more money potentially, or that player's been released. If there's a decent player pool out there, then there might well be. I think the Welsh Fire should be a team that risks it. It's like, okay, we're released everyone, let's rebuild, and let's try and take advantage of this. Because you're not going to win the thing with the side of the hat. You know, you keep your pieces. I'd try and keep Kays Ahmad. Uh, I would definitely, definitely try and keep uh, Glenn Phillips. Uh, Jai Richardson... In, I think I think you I probably would. keep those three I would. get rid of Karen Pollard personally. Um, and then you kind of, you've got a couple of, you know, local players you like, Jake Ball, for example. But then I think from that point, you really try and just dis- dismantle it, work with those building blocks and try and get as much talent as you can possibly. That would be my thoughts on the Welsh Fire. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. I think the worst case scenario for them is that they can just, redraft a lot of the players that they already had to be honest because let's face it a lot of them probably are going to go undrafted if they're released so you can't really get any worse than what they already have with that in mind you might as well just release a lot of players that didn't really perform at that standard you might as well because you have nothing to lose by doing that potentially quite a lot to gain Mm. i do think ultimately if your team's not good then You've got to risk it. Well, what's the point of just accepting you're going to come sixth again? Because neither the Welsh Fire or the London Spirit can win the tournament. I really don't think they can. Um, I think ultimately you kind of have to risk it. And that comes on to our next question, actually, from Jack at Pig Cricket. Thank you for this, Jack. If all teams pursue a fairly optimum retention strategy, is there enough left in the player pool for last year's poorer teams to mount a reasonable challenge? Um, interesting question. I'm going to change it slightly. That's all right, Jack, because I do not believe that all of the teams are going to pursue a fairly optimum retention strategy. Um, that's just, <laughs> look, let's not, let's not give too much credit to hundred teams. I think every single hundred team, you can look at some of their selections and be like, what on earth were you doing? But that, let's just say that it kind of goes as we would expect with say, I don't know, three or four relatively big names being released. The Garton, maybe a George Garton, goes for example i'm not saying he would but but you know a, a player of that caliber might go in you might get for example a sakamamood in the last draft when the manchester originals let him go there would there will be those players in even if teams pursue a good retention strategy because however good your strategy is it can't necessarily the southern brain they're probably not gonna be able to keep everyone right so say a garton or, or linter or a mills or whatever and some other decent players pop up what does that mean for a team like the Welsh Fire or the London Spirit, who are probably going to both blow things up completely. Do you, do you think there's enough there for them to actually be a contender, Charlie? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know necessarily if there's going to be quite enough to be a contender this year. But what I think might be the case, and this is probably the strategy I would adopt if I was in charge of one of these two teams. We'll go into this in more detail in later episodes. But what I would suggest is going for younger players with mm. high potential and high upside because you might not necessarily be able to build a team that's going to win now, but you can definitely, if you're clever, build a team that can win in a couple of seasons' time and not only win then, but be a really dominant team in seasons to come. But it's hard to answer for sure without knowing exactly what that player was going to be. Yeah, and here's the thing about the Southern Braves. Do you remember? I think people, a lot of people sniffed at the George Scarton selection. We were a bit confused at the time because we liked what Garton offered. But he'd barely played T20s due to injuries. We're like, well, if he hasn't played in a while, you know, he's got talent. Is it worth drafting him here? Hell yeah, it was worth drafting him there. He's suddenly a player that is one of the highest caliber T20 players in, in England. 
I think, you know, that is, that's the kind of strategy you have to go down. You have to make, take a couple of gambles. And I do think that if you take those gambles and you do have a good draft strategy for two years, you can definitely be a contender. Then that's the kind of thing about this first draft. It's completely hamstrung two teams straight away because they just did, they just did it really badly. Um, I think that, and we'll go into more detail. I think three teams are going to blow up their squads this, this off season. Um, I won't say who they are, but there's two obvious ones, another slightly less obvious one. But I, I do think that it'll be tough. But I, I have the belief that they could mount a challenge. I'm not saying they could win it. I, I say that I think if the spirit and the fire blew everything up and the things go fell as we expect them to, and they used a, a good draft strategy, which, again, they're probably not going to because it's the London Spirit of Welsh Fire, I think they could mount a challenge. They are in a really weak position. Um, but for me, as somebody who would love to be involved with this kind of thing and take on this challenge, I actually think it's kind of fun. Um, and I do think there is the opportunity there to to change things around. And, and with T20 tournaments, you do see some really bad sides. And they do stay bad. And they're probably one of the Spirit and Wash Fire is probably going to be the worst team in the tournament for quite a while. That's just how T20 tournaments work. You get these bottom feeders and they just can't work it out. But I do think if you did things properly, which again, they probably won't, you probably could mount a challenge this year and probably have the potential to be a winner the year after at the latest, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think that's fair. Like I say, it's hard to answer for sure because we don't necessarily know what that player pool is going to look like. It's not impossible that all the teams retain, you know, a lot of players and there aren't a huge deal of particularly great domestic players out there. But it's likely there's going to be a few. And I think it's it's very, very... I can say with some certainty that there is no doubt in my mind that if Spirit and Fire were to release a fair amount of these squads, that if they play their cards right, there could be a much better team. Maybe not challenges straight away, but certainly a lot better. There is no question that they can be significantly improved with a good draft strategy. Mm. I, I think it's really interesting, and I would like to uh, remind everybody that uh, Charlie Peterson and Ed Farrah are available to take over your team's draft strategy. Uh, you can contact us at Podcast 100 on Twitter. Um, Welsh Fire, we'd love to hear from you. For me, that's a fascinating project. Uh, with, Spirit, with Spirit, I would refuse a job from them just because I want to see what Shane Warne does. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, because he has actually leaked his number one target conversation on the ashes <laughs> yeah, he has already leaked his number one target he wants Mitchell Stark uh, oh, he wants dear. Mitchell Stark we were talking about this in more detail in a later podcast when we oh, go into these teams and their potential processes in more detail Warney mm. wants Mitchell Stark as his he, number one he target want, he doesn't want Mitchell Stark he's just saying that so that Mitchell Stark doesn't come out after the game and call him out <laughs> um, um. Oh, God. But yeah, this is the thing. I would not accept a job there because I just want to see what the spirit would do. But Welsh Fire genuinely is a really interesting project for me and me and Charlie are available to consult on that if you would like. Let's move on to our next question. Uh, it's draft strategy again. Craig Ellicott. Talking draft strategy would be good. Some teams seem to go for particular players whilst others opt for a particular format or player stats that fit with what they're looking for in their team. This is an interesting one. As a draft team, do you try and pick players that fit inside the model that you want to create for your side, how they want to play? Or do you just pick really, really good players and just build a load of talent and hope it works? I think it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea to just splash cash on players who you think are good without necessarily thinking about 
how they're going to fit together. I think you have to be looking for particular skill sets because if you look at the London Spirit, for example, their 2019 draft was very much based around we're going to pick players who we think are good. And it was very clear as the following months and years progressed that there was no philosophy, there was no identity and no ethos there in that team whatsoever. It just felt like a collection of individuals who were mostly declining. And yeah. I think that's a really good example of how you can't just pick players you like and hope it's going to work because it might not. It might fail spectacularly. I would strongly advise teams to work out a data-driven approach, work out what they think is going to win them cricket matches and then recruit players accordingly to have relevant skill sets and data that matches that. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing for me is because a lot of the kind of the draft background that I have, my fascination with drafts really um, comes from the NFL draft, which is very different. Because in the NFL draft, if you don't know what it is, basically, is every NFL team has a certain amount of players on their roster that they've picked up over the years, whether that's just signing them or drafting them, whatever. And every year, they get a minimum of seven picks, although they can trade them away and stuff, to pick the best players coming out of college. So when you enter an NFL draft, you already have a team. That team might be really good. They might be really bad, but you have a team. So theoretically, you don't really need to pick certain players at certain positions because you already have a team. So you can just pick the best players available, and that's what teams should ultimately do, including positional value and stuff like that. In It's just picking the best players and building talent. In the 100, however, or in cricket drafts in general, you actually have to create a team from scratch. And so just picking good players and the best talent doesn't always work. Because obviously you could pick a great team and then, well, who bats six? Well, so, so we don't have enough bowling options. Well, who's going to bat in the middle order? Those things kind of happen. So I think you have to be flexible. I have to think, you have to have a think of, okay, what suits our home ground? Uh, what do we think are the kind of strategies are going to work in the 100? What kind of players are really valuable to us? And you attack valuable players early rounds. And ultimately, you also factor in, hey, okay, if a... That's I don't know who the next George Garton might be, right? We we could have debates about that for ages. But say there's this really, really exciting player coming to you in like round 10. Blake Cullen is that guy for me, right? Blake Cullen or Bryden Cast comes to you at a certain point, you're like, okay, maybe they don't fit right now, but God, they're going to be great T20 players. You pick them. I think that's how you ultimately, you pick between your strategy for what you want and also bring in good players. And I think ultimately that's where you have a data-driven approach, but also you have to depend on coaching a little bit. Because ultimately, Bryden Cast has not had great data in his T20 career. Also, I would argue that Bryden Cast could be the next Anrik Norhea. I think that's kind of the, the, the balance you have to have. You have to have the data-driven stuff and how to build the best team, but also be like, well, let's take a punt on this. Because ultimately, if it's round eight or nine and we could get Anrik Norhea, let's do it. So I think that's the kind of balance you have to have. I think that's a totally fair approach, actually. I, I do think it, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I think data is useful in helping identify who those next big stars are going to oh, be. Oh, yeah. But as you say, it isn't necessarily always the be all end, although it is very important. Brian Carr is actually a really good example of a guy who, like you say, his data isn't all that at all. If you're purely looking at data, he probably wouldn't come that close to being picked particularly high up. But when you watch him bowl, you can tell that he's got a hell of a lot of potential. So with that in mind, it's a, it's a toss-up. But I, I think when you're building a, a team from scratch, I don't think it's just a case of 
splashing your cash at big no. name players that you think are good. I think that's a really poor strategy. I think it's, I would typically aim towards younger players with high potential who are going to, in a few years' time, give you a really, really special output and shape the, f- the future of your franchise. Yeah, I think data is super useful and every team should have a data-driven approach because, as you say, you, you definitely can work out who the next stars are um, on the you know on the domestic cricket front from data in second eleven cricket Leicestershire picked some really good players up recently. Well, a lot of teams will use data and find the right players to come through. I think you have that obviously, and you can get value with data low in the draft. But also, you can look at a guy who's bowling ninety mile an hour and be like, yes, please. And so I think that's there's so many things to to factor in. But ultimately, I think it is that fact that you want to get really valuable players in really valuable positions, whether that's an opening batter, a finisher, high-class spin bowler, or a really good, genuine quick. Those are, I think, top top players usually. And um, you go after those early, and then you kind of build balance, but also you build potential and build talent. So I think that's how teams should go about it. Um, whether whether teams will always go down that route. I think it's it's tough to find that balance. You know, you can never do it perfectly, and... You know, I think drafting is very difficult. I think that's, you know, we can always criticize every people. It's really difficult. I mean, obviously, some teams are just really bad at it, but you can't have a perfect draft, and you can't have a perfect draft strategy. There we are. Thank you for that, Craig. If you want to hear more about our draft ramblings, we do do a lot of that. That's kind of our niche, and we'll have loads of interesting stuff regarding retentions and draft strategy moving in uh, across the new year, heading into the draft in March. We'll have a lot of focus on that. Final couple of questions. First one from Carl Henningway. Thank you for this, Carl. He asks, what are your highlights of the year for the 100? How heartwarming. Oh, now we're at Christmas, baby. Let me switch on my jumper again. Charlie, what have <laughs> what your, your kind of favourite moments of the year been? Because I think when we entered into this, we were a little bit sceptical of how it would go. But ultimately, I thought there were some really nice moments this year. Absolutely. I think... The first moment that really comes to mind for me was seeing with you and our friend Jack Butler the mm. very first ever 100 game, uh, Manchester Originals versus Old Vince Sports Women. Because I think coming into it, as you allude to, we were all a little bit, you know, maybe sceptical. Is this going to work out as planned? Is it actually going to be any good? And going there, watching that game, I think it very quickly became apparent that yes, it was going to be good. It just felt so fresh and vibrant and genuinely exciting. And it, it felt like a real moment. And I think at that point, it really clicked for all of us. I think we all left thinking, this is good. This is going to work. There was just a a real buzz around the ground. The the vibe was really nice. It just felt like a very fun, positive experience that was just going to work going forward. I love that. And I think in general, just seeing how well the women's game has progressed and developed uh, and really come to a much higher level of public conscious as a result of 100, that's been highlight for me that's just been so good yeah that first game was fantastic it was a bit of a shame the final for the women was so one-sided games like that happen and you know it's just how it works it was a shame the southern brave are so dominant and just have one of those games in the final which happens when you're playing the team that has marazan Kappen in it obviously um uh, and the over the had a fantastic attack um and that's just how things roll but i thought it was a fantastic tournament and that first game really was rather magical i think we both went in a little bit sceptical and we spent the first hour, half an hour, an hour being like, what the hell are these graphics? What the hell is happening? And after the game we left, after that fantastic finish, and we were like, this is great. I think that was a real moment. Um, and that was 
really genuinely very special. Really genuinely very special. I think there were some fantastic moments. I think any moment that included Liam Livingston was pretty cool in general. Um, I thought just the story of Jake Linter was just was just fantastic on our end. I thought that was really special. Um, just having you know, having a guy kind of come out of nowhere almost was was really lovely. And I think that was just it was again it was a really really lovely story. Um, and I'm just so happy that stories like that happen in the hundred. I think that's what's great about the tournament is you get these kind of stories coming out of nowhere. So I thought that was really special as well. And yeah, there were just so many great moments. And I'm really looking forward to 2022 because I do hope that the tournament can continue to progress and we can keep making those memories, especially now a lot of the games are on the BBC. And uh, actually running back to that question from earlier on from Barbary and regarding what can it do to consolidate the success regarding to the hundred, more games on free to wear. So what happened on with, with the F1, with the Verstappen-Hamilton title race? Suddenly, everyone was talking about it because it was on free-to-air telly. There, 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 there were so many people who hadn't watched F1 before, barely watched F1, just watched them as it was the final, and it was on free-to-air. So that's what uh, the 100 is to do, get out there more, get out there more, just get players in the communities more, make those special memories and moments for families, uh, and I think that will be the focus. And hopefully this tournament will go strength to strength let's move on to our final question shall we uh, of the christmas mailbag how festive are we uh, this is rosie again on twitter thank you very much this question is which team is going to win next year uh, <laughs> mm. Mm. ah wow interesting southern brave <laughs> <laughs> oh this is just really um, it's really difficult to predict because we obviously don't know how this retention thing is going to be and, and it could be a difficult situation for them but I thought they were just clearly the best side once they worked out their balance. Uh, I thought they had a really good plan for their home ground. And, you know, early on, we saw them struggling. with, like, oh, my God, this is not going to work. But then it turns out, this might surprise you, Charlie, Mahela J. Wardner is a very good coach. And he worked it out. Uh, and I don't know what Mahela J. Wardner's problem is with, like, the first two games of a season. I don't know if he just goes out drinking every night with his players to get to know them. And they're on the beers all the first couple of weeks. And then suddenly like, oh, God, we're going to be knocked out in a moment. Probably should win out and win the tournament. But no, I, I really like what the Southern Brave do. And I think, they're a, um, I think they're in the strongest position right now. I think when you look at both men's and women's tournaments, the teams that recruited best did the best. It seems like an obvious point, but I think some people and evidently coaches and general managers seem to forget that as well. If you have a good recruitment process then you're probably going to do very well. And that happened, I think, in the men's competition. The Brave and the Phoenix are arguably two of the best recruiters there, and they got to the final, deservedly so. Likewise, you look in the women's teams, overall invincibles, recruited very well, deserve winners. Southern Brave probably had a better squad overall on paper, again, recruited very well and, and did well. So in both competitions, I think you're seeing the teams that recruited the best being the best team. There's obvious the point is that may seem. And... I think the same can be true again next year. So I'd say all the teams I've mentioned above are going to have a very good chance again because they have good squads. They recruited well. Yeah. It is a bit boring of me to say the Southern Brave are probably favourites of both the men and women's team. But they're, they're, I think they'll probably bounce back in the women's tournament after a loss like that with a squad they have. I don't think they're going to lose a final for a second year. I don't think that's how it's going to go. I think they're going to find back. And, in the, and again, it so much depends on recruitment and changes, but I do think they're both favourites. In terms of teams outside of the obvious... Whereas we could say, look, Birmingham Phoenix had a very good year last year. I think ultimately they they were just found out a little bit with that second SEMA spot, which just didn't work for them all tournament. And that's a shame. I think they've got worked out a little bit, but they were really good. Is there a side, bar the Southern Brave, 
maybe bar the Phoenix, who I think are going to be really, really good again next year. Is there a team that you think is going to really come out of that pack and be a true challenger? I think there are two teams who I'm going to pencil in as being potentially pretty exciting. The first of them is Oval Invincibles. I think mm-hmm. they have a very strong core in that squad. I think if they retain properly and, and, and recruit some, some good players, as I'm sure they will do, then I think they could be a real challenger here. They've got serious quality. Another team who I'd like to point out, who, despite their performances last season, do have a really strong core of players, despite having a coach they don't particularly rate that much, is the Northern Superchargers. Yeah. Um, we were looking at, at their at squads the other day, actually, just kind of making tentative approaches to see who we would be looking at retaining and releasing, which we'll talk about in more detail in podcasts coming out in the new year. Um, and I think we're both slightly surprised at just how many really quality players the Northern Superchargers have. Um, I think there's did have some questionable areas of recruitment. I think that's fair to say. Some areas I would definitely be looking to uh, change and improve on. But I think if they choose to retain the correct ones, I think they could have a really strong side. I mean, they won't because it's Darren Lehman, but they could. Yeah. Ultimately, I think the Northern Superchargers for me are a team that should be really contending. Look at the quality they have. Well, it's Adel Rashid, Harry Brook, um, David Willey, Tonko Lakaumor. Majib. There are so many players that, I mean, John Simpson had a great year. I mean, there are so many really good players there. And ultimately, they need to get rid of Chris Lynn. I mean, that was a dreadful yeah, selection. Agreed. They need to get better overseas on that front. Um Obviously, having Aaron Finch would have been nice, but obviously they need to they need to work out how they're going to get rid of Chris Lynn and get a quality overseas in there. But ultimately, regardless of who they retain, the most important retention is whether they retain Darren Lehman. If they retain Darren Lehman, they're not winning the tournament next year. They're not because, I mean, there's a number of reasons. Darren Lehman, I would be personally surprised, given the current climate, if Darren Lehman was still the coach of the Northern Superchargers next year. I think given everything that's gone on at Yorkshire, it would be a surprise for a, a man of his record to still be there. Um, and I think that's kind of a tough one to work out, but I would be surprised if he's there. On a purely cricketing sense, and let's leave all that out of that, because I think there are a lot of people who will be able to explain that better than us. If I, was, if I was in charge of the Northern Superchargers, and I looked at that year, and I looked at what it was, and I was new to the side, I would get rid of Darren Lehman anyway, because I don't think he's a very good coach. Just my thought. I don't think yeah. he's been a good. I don't think he's been a good T20 coach since he won the IPL with the Deccan Chargers. I think that's how long ago it was that the Deccan Chargers were still a thing. <laughs> oh man, the flashbacks, the memories. I think he he is the ultimate one for me because I think they have such a good squad. There's so much talent there that you, you know if Bryden Cast kicks on, David Willey, Majib, Adil Rashid, Callum Parkinson, that bowling set that's really special. Um, Let's say if they went overseas and so Chris Lynn, then you, then you have Aaron Finch there. You have Adam Light there. That's two really good top-order options, David Woodley again, Tom Cola Cadmore, Harry Brook, John Simpson. The talent is all there. Ultimately, I think they, for me, are one of the top four sides in the tournament if they do this retention well, if they get rid of Chris Lynn, and if they get rid of Darren Light. That's my thought. No, I completely agree with you there. I think they have all the parts apart from the coach, to be a really strong side. Whether or not they change that is another story for another day. And 
I'm sure we'll talk about that if or when anything does happen on that front. But I certainly think they're a better side than Trent Rockets on paper. I certainly think that who finished above yeah. them last season. Yeah, I think with Trent Rockets are an interesting one because I think they could be a team that either really has a great season next year or falls off as their players are getting a bit old. Um, they kind of are the CSK, I think, of this situation. Um, the Stephen Fleming. Yeah, And Stephen Fleming is a great coach, don't get me wrong. I do think he has to make some changes with his team. I think he is putting a bit of a ceiling on them with the style of play, but he's a great coach. I'm sure it'll work out. So I think it's, I think it's pretty open. I mean, I think the Southern Brave are favourites, but I do think there are lots of teams out there who can do really well. And let's not forget, in knockout cricket, Let's remember the 100, of course, will be making some scheduling changes next year. We've got to talk about this, our favourite topic, and getting rid of the qualifier and bringing in semi-finals. That's so off-brand of us to forget to mention that on the scheduling question. I'm desperately sorry, 12K Talkie Palm. That's very off-brand of us, of course. That's the big thing that 100 needs to change. Again, with Barney and Merrill's question, what can it do to consolidate the success? (laughs) It's, of course, bringing in semi-finals. Oh, I can't believe we forgot that. Hey, but that's a Christmas miracle, us forgetting to mention semi-finals and giving you all a break for it for 45 minutes or whatever. So, lucky you. And on that note of reminding everybody that semi-finals should be a thing uh, and that knockout cricket is great and it means anyone can win it, that's the end of our Christmas mailbag. Have you enjoyed it, Charlie? Feeling festive now? Honestly, I have really enjoyed that episode, actually. I feel like there's lots of really good questions in there. I think we discussed a lot of really interesting things and I'm, I'm getting excited both for Christmas and for the transfer window run up to the draft. I think that's going to be really interesting, seeing the retentions and releases coming in. That's going to be so fun. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, Of course, we do celebrate Christmas, but our main festive holiday here at The 100 Podcast is the uh, is the 100 Draft in March. Uh, we'll be celebrating that with 12 days of 100 Draft, with 100 Draft hymns, uh, with 100 Draft advent calendar. We're very excited for it. <laughs> but there we are. Uh, keep your on, the seventh day of Christmas. <laughs> on the seventh seven day of Christmas, my true love gave to me Bryden Cass in the round seven category. <laughs> uh, uh, we love your mailbag questions. Please keep them coming in. Uh, Twitter's at Podcast 100, drop us a DM, whatever it is. We, we love doing these mailbags because it's interesting to get your thoughts and answer your questions. We really enjoy it. So please do keep sending them in and we'll keep answering them. Um, but thank you very much for listening to The 100 Podcast. Check out some of our previous episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And yeah, have a fabulous Merry Christmas. And we'll talk to you soon. All the best. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.